Okay, this is the Understanding the European Context session. Good afternoon, I suppose it is already, since it's uh, 12 o'clock. Although here in Spain, the afternoon doesn't really start until 3. Uh, so, um, my name is Jim Memory. And uh, I am absolutely delighted to be able to share something with you which I've lived with for the last five or six years. Because I presented this for the first time in the spring of 2013 in a one-off event. And uh, as much as things can go viral, it went a bit viral. Okay? Because I got invited to do it over and over and over again in different settings, in different places. And it was one of the few times in my life where I feel like I was actually very prophetic. <laughs> so, um, it was a case of this uh, overview of what is happening in Europe... Uh, across a whole range of different things providing a context for uh, what we do as mission uh, workers in Europe today. So I'm going to pray and then we'll get started. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity to open our eyes, to lift those eyes up to the horizon, to look around us to what is happening in Europe today. I do pray that you'd help me, uh, help all of us as we uh, wrestle with what it means to do mission in Europe today with our eyes open as to what are the what is the, the, the challenges and the opportunities of the context in which we find ourselves. Pray you help us to use this time for your glory in your name. Amen. Okay, so basically what I tried to do in that session was to give an overview of what's happening looking at the European context through a series of different lenses. And those lenses are affecting what is going on the left-hand side of that chart. So looking at what's happen happening politically in Europe, what is happening economically, socially, environmentally, technologically and spiritually. But at the same time as just sort of saying, well, that's what's going on, to think too about what challenges that poses for Christian mission and what opportunities that poses. Now in my mind, okay, when I was preparing this, although people thought I was talking about the general situation in Europe and I will be doing that, what I really have in my heart is to equip you guys with a lens to think about your local situation. Okay, so this here Okay, as I'll, I'll be talking about the general generalities, but this here, I want you to think, okay, I work in, I don't know, let's say the Stockholm. Okay, what are the political challenges in my city? But also, what are the opportunities for the gospel because of, of those specific challenges? Okay, so although I'll be talking generally, I want you to be thinking about what this means for you in your situation, because nobody has to live in Europe. Huh? What do you mean by that? We don't live in Europe. We live in our city. We live in our town. Okay, yes, Europe exists and it's out there, but we don't have to... F f we don't wrestle with all the European problems. We wrestle with, with local challenges. And yes, they're affected by what is going on more broadly, but um, we have to think about what God is calling us to do in our situation. Yeah? Yes. It is on. Okay, so I'm going to rattle through my slides quite quickly, um, but just to uh, some of them are, f uh, are very illustrative. So this is available to you. I don't know whether you're going to be distributing all the materials afterwards, but of course, please do make use of this. And if you want to, I mean, I'm, I really, really do not care if you plagiarise my stuff. Okay, just putting that out there. Uh, if it's a blessing, just use it, okay? So don't feel bad if you pick up things. You don't need to ask me permission, just go ahead, all right? It's for the kingdom. So, those are the, the, the areas that we're going to be looking at. So we're going to start off with the political context. The political context in Europe has changed immeasurably in the last 10 years. Back in 2008, the European project was full steam ahead. We just signed the Lisbon Treaty that had extended the number of countries that there were going to be in Europe. Eight Central and Eastern European countries had just, had just joined. Czech Republic, Estonia, Hungary, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, Slovakia and Slovenia had joined the club. Talks with Croatia were well advanced and 
just a couple of years later they also joined the EU. 28 members and the answer to all the problems of Europe are seen as more Europe. Okay, we need more Europe. Enlargement would bring us all together. Uh, more financial uh, and political integration. Further enlargement would be the answer. How things have changed. Nationalism has returned across Europe. Populist movements can be found wherever you look, from Finland to Greece to Portugal, even in the Faroe Islands. Some of them are calling for greater national uh, or regional autonomy. Some, like Catalonia and Scotland recently, for full independence. The elections in the European Parliament, uh, just back uh, earlier this year, <coughs> saw victories for the far right in quite a number of countries, but also big wins for the Greens. In France, uh, Le Pen's National Rally Party, no longer called National Front, um, topped the polls, 23% of voters. But in the Netherlands, the party of Herr Wilders lost all of its seats. So it's not that everywhere is turning right-wing nationalist, but there's things going on with all of that. But the number of countries where there are far-right movements has increased significantly. Here in Spain, we now have a far-right party, the Vox party. They got 6% in the last elections. In Slovakia, the far-right party got 12%. And of course, I haven't even mentioned the word which has become a singular word in all European languages. Brexit. They don't translate that, you know. It's just taken up in every language of Europe. Brexit has completely dominated the political debate for the last five years in the UK. We still don't know what's going to happen. Uh, I've got myself an Irish passport now, so I'm okay. Um, but uh, its, uh, its implications are still largely unknown. But what is certain is that we are going to be living with the consequences of Brexit for the next generation, however it falls. Politically, economically, but much more importantly, missiologically. Okay? It's going to have an impact on mission. It's already had an impact on mission. I had the privilege of travelling around the UK in the spring of 2016 talking about the issues that Christians need to think about as they were coming to vote in the referendum. I wasn't telling people which way to vote. I was just reviewing the, the issues, trying to help people to understand the challenge that we faced at that time. And I was horrified at how already the Euroscepticism was having an impact on people's attitudes to mission. Okay? I don't care if you want in or out with respect to membership of the EU. I really do care if that turns your heart okay, against Europeans and against the people of, uh, of our continent. Okay? That's the real, the real problem that this whole issue turns people uh, inward and they stop looking for, for looking at the, the Samaria that is on our doorstep, as I was saying yesterday. Yeah? yeah. And then, of course, we have... Oh, sorry, I've missed my slide. There we go. That's my, uh, uh, my, my slide. And then, of course, we have Russia. The occupation of southeast Ukraine has dropped out of the news, but despite the sanctions that were applied by the EU, the, Russia has basically adjusted to this new economic reality, and Putin's been re-elected. The cyber attacks associated with the Brexit vote and with the US election, nerve gas incident in England, in England the increased tensions on the borders of the Baltic countries, are all signs that Russia continues to look to take advantage of the weaknesses in different European countries. Uh, and their perceived enemies in Europe. Sweden, one of the countries that historically has had the most tension with Russia, going back through the centuries, has recently in reintroduced national service. Did you know that? They've increased funding for the armed services, and many of them are in, many in Sweden are now advocating joining, the, joining NATO, which is something they've always been very resistant to, purely because they're starting to really worry about Russia again. 
That is the political context we have in Europe today, a political space that is increasingly fractured, where right-wing populism, left-wing anti-globalization movements, and a resurgent Russia, and of course Brexit, will condition things for years to come. What about economics? Well, economics, things, things have improved, haven't they? At least that's better than it was in 2009-10 when we had the big economic crisis. Well, the collapse of Lehman Brothers certainly precipitated problems in Europe. There was a uh, uh, recession, widespread recession, and then a couple of years later, the sovereign debt crisis in Europe between 2010 and 2013, causing all the bailouts that we have all read about in some countries and drastic public spending cuts in others. But everything now is more or less back on track, isn't it? In Europe, you know, economies are moving along. Here we are in, in Malaga, everything seems to be okay. Well, let's look at the facts. I want to show you a couple of charts, okay? This one here shows the GDP growth in the Eurozone over the last 10 years. Now, GDP, as I'm sure you all know, is the simple measure they use for economic growth. Um, it's, like, it's a bit like the blood pressure of an economy. Okay? You, can, you can see immediately two significant dips in that. The one here, which was the general recession, and this one corresponding to the sovereign debt crisis. Um, but what I really want you to notice here is the y-axis. Okay? Look at those percentages. Zero means no economic growth. The economies of the Eurozone are growing a little bit, but very, very weakly. And in the case of Germany, it's recently become so weak that it's now teetering on the brink of a recession again. But look at this second graph, because this is probably even more worrying. This graph shows the amount of money that the European Central Bank has been pumping into the European economy to keep it going. Returning to the blood pressure analogy again, this is a bit like a monthly blood transfusion to keep your blood pressure up. Okay? Those quantities, you can see what we're talking about there, monthly quantities of money that are being printed to keep the European economy afloat. 60 billion euro in March 2015 and through the months of 2015, rising in up to 85 billion through 2016, dropping back down to 2017 to 60, and during 2018 to 30. At the beginning of this year, European Central Bank removed quantitative easing. They stopped all of that and said, we don't need a blood transfusion anymore until last month, when they said, actually, no, we do need to start doing this again. So that we're back up at this sort of level again. But what we're talking about here, just at this lower level, 30 billion euro, is 88 euro a month for each and every European citizen. So turning that into your household income, okay, Scott and Christina, how many members of your household? Five, okay? Five times 88, let's round, round it up to 400 euro a month. You're 400, month, 400 euros a month short and you're having to take a loan to cover that you have to pay basically you're having to borrow 400 euros a month just to keep your family economy afloat okay you would know that that was not a sustainable situation but that's what we're doing in Europe we're borrowing against the future to enable us to keep our economy more or less on an even keel okay inflation is pretty much at zero so the only way that, that uh, we can do anything about that is by increasing consumption. So we're buying more stuff, and we're being encouraged to buy more stuff to keep the economy going. So basically, we are behaving like these guys. Okay, I don't know whether you can see that. Uh, there they are, they've got their shrimps on the barbie. Uh, they're enjoying their swimming pool. Everything's great, no problem. And of course, the, the flip-flops, which are holding up the power cable here, you know, that's not really a sustainable situation. It's funny, but it's not funny. Right? That's what we're doing. And in the real world, 
in the real world. I don't need to tell you that unemployment is a significant problem in many countries. Youth unemployment is just enormously problematic. 25 minimum, pushing up in some places up to 40-50% of young people unemployed. The only hope that they have is to leave, basically, and go where the jobs are. Across many parts of Central, Eastern and Mediterranean Europe, a whole generation of young people are missing because they've left to find work in other parts of Europe. What about the social context? Well, in respect to the social context, I want to highlight two issues. The first of these is migration. I talked about that yesterday. Now, the so-called migration crisis of 2015-16 saw more than 1.5 million refugees, principally from Syria, Afghanistan and Iraq, arrive mainly by land and sea into southern Europe. But in 2016, many European countries changed their refugee policies and strengthened the border control. So basically, they went for a one-in-one-out policy with Turkey that shut that border to a large extent. Today we have huge refugee camps now in Greece. Uh, people are stuck in uh, Lesbos and other places. Uh, it's terrible. And unsurprisingly, migrants have started to find, to look for other routes and so they've moved west and so now there's a big flow across the western Mediterranean into Spain. These are the most recent statistics from the International Organization for Migration. They show the numbers of arrivals by land or sea, and you can see that peaking in 2015, around a million, uh, and reducing down since then uh, to its current level uh, of, in 2018, the last full year of data available, 141,000. Uh, 2,270 said seven of those dead or missing. But migration is not only a matter of refugees. As I mentioned yesterday, um, emigration is also a huge problem in Eastern Europe and Central Europe particularly. Where are the world's 10, ten countries with the fastest shrinking populations? I'll show you where they are. There. Okay? Globally, the 10 fastest shrinking populations, Bulgaria, Latvia, Moldova, Ukraine, Croatia, Lithuania, Romania, Serbia, Poland, and Hungary. The population of some of those countries has suffered enormously from this migration of the youngest and most talented. Since 89, Latvia has lost 27% of its population. Lithuania, 23, Bulgaria, 21. In total, 21 Central and Eastern European countries have lost more than 10% of their population. That is unprecedented in times of peace. That type of shrinkage only normally happens when there's a war or some terrible disease or, or you know, disaster. Is that, is that through emigration? Is it also lack of birth? Yeah, I'm coming on to that. <laughs> and migration is one reason for these collapsing populations, but the other is our widespread, widespread reluctance as Europeans. Oh, sorry, I'm, I'm behind. All of this will be on the presentation, which you'll all get. Okay, so you don't need to take photographs unless you really, really want to. So there's a bit more information about the shrinking populations. But it is also a factor, our reluctance to make these. Across Europe, not a single Euro European state has a birth rate sufficient to maintain its population. And in certain countries, in Eastern Europe and along the Mediterranean, the birth, birth rates are frighteningly low. So this is another relatively recent statistic, 2015. Birth rates don't tend to vary all that much year to year, so it's pretty much there. And you can see that in Mediterranean Europe, 1.32, 1.35 in the case of Italy, 1.33, 1.31. Replacement is 2.1 uh, per a woman of, of um, childbearing age. None of the countries get to 2.1. The best are um, France and Ireland and uh, UK, I think, and Sweden. A lot of that is actually down to 
um, the migrants who have more children. Europe, frankly, has been committing protracted demographic suicide for several decades. One of the major factors is that women are deciding to have children later, particularly if they're university educated. Uh, the age there of first-time mothers is pushing 30. If they're university educated, the average is often 35. But the, the countries tend to fall into four groups. So I'm going to show you this chart, which is difficult to read, okay, from on the screen, but it's just interesting to see. What you've got there, effectively, is a plot of the age or the, that a mother becomes uh, a mother for the first time, along the bottom, and then the total fertility rate uh, going up the y-axis. So you can see this cluster of Mediterranean countries down here, with low birth rate and late first child, okay? Um, moving across this, this direction, low birth rate, but have their start the family earlier, um, to the high birth rate older group up here, and then the low birth rate, uh, sorry, high birth rate younger group. Interesting, isn't it, where those countries are, are located? Anecdotal, uh, it, it, it's worth saying. Okay, now Theresa May is no longer the uh, Prime Minister in the UK, you knew that I guess, but all of those leaders are childless. Okay, so Angela Merkel has an, uh, Macron and Theresa May, none of them have children. Um, yes, horses got loads. Horses got loads. Yeah, I, I was going to make that joke, but you've made it for me, okay? <laughs> Uh, we don't quite know. We don't quite know how many children Boris Johnson has. Um, the few European voices that dare to talk about this, and frankly, we don't talk about it anywhere near as much as we should do. Note that both the Greeks and the Romans attributed attributed the failure of their civilizations to falling birth rates, because nobody wanted the responsibility of bringing up children. Maybe the most radical thing we can do as Christians today, is to encourage our young people to have families. Sounds su such a basic thing, doesn't it? Uh, such a normal thing. And yet when uh, a young person gets married, as my own son did just two weeks ago, at the age of 23, okay, people say, well, that's very young to get married. You know? Um, the mindset has changed. People have got locked into a way of thinking, okay, that means that having children is now something quite radical. <laughs> it's crazy. Well, the combination of migration and differential birth rates means that the future of Europe's population is going to look like this. Now, again, it's too much information to get in one, one uh, picture, but basically those are projections of the European population where the population is likely to grow due to mainly migration, evidently, and where it's due to shrink, uh, both through migration and through low birth rate. So migration helps to balance out the, the birth rate issues, but as you can see, not everywhere. Germany still has a huge problem. Angela Merkel wasn't totally being generous with her policy of letting in all the Syrian refugees. It wasn't totally dis disinterested. They've had a low birth rate for the last 25 years. The German population is likely to shrink significantly. It will probably not be the biggest country in Europe in 30 years' time. Okay, on population alone. Okay, that's uh, population. So, I'm racing through this, okay, and I'm sure there's probably questions, but uh, we'll do those at the end. Um, the next issue that I want to talk about is the environmental context. Uh, frankly, green issues have rather dropped off the political agenda in many countries, with the whole focus being on politics and economics. Uh, but 17 of the last, sorry, 17 of the 18 hottest years on record have happened since the turn of the century. I'll let you do the maths on that. And basically, the, the, the climate, extreme climate events have become normal occurrences 
in most of the countries of Europe. It's not so much global warming, but what some call global weirding. The weather is just becoming more extreme. Northern Europe saw thermometers hit an all-time high during 2018. In Denmark, June 2018 was the warmest of the last 26 years, and July, the sunniest of all time. In Finland, areas of the North Atlantic reached 33 degrees, whilst in Lapland it was hit by disastrous fires. Sweden had a long heat wave and only had 13 millimetres of rain from the beginning of May to late July. But we're not only talking about heat waves. Flooding has also become a regular occurrence in many places. In January 2018, the picture there, the Seine in Paris, <coughs> rose to four metres above its normal level, the highest level in a century. In August of last year, Budapest, though, reached its lowest level. And the research suggests that the European capitals in the future that will, be, that will suffer from problems with flooding include places like Dublin, Helsinki, Riga, Vilnius and Zagreb. Climate change migration may well become an issue. It's not that you can't live in the south of England, but if you've got flooding because your house is along the Thames and it's not happening once every ten years, but pretty much two or three times a year, who wants to live with that? Okay? So the costs of sorting this out are, are so prohibitive, people will start to move in some places. That's a problem. I'm racing through this a little bit, but it's uh, just to give you the full, broad picture. I'm going to talk about the spiritual context in a minute, but we have another one that I want to address. And this wasn't in my original study, but it's also really important. At the end of 2015, the World Economic Forum produced the report that you can see on the screen. On the screen, it's called Deep Shift. You can find it on the internet. Technological tipping points and societal impact. It highlights six technological megatrends and how they are shaping the future. And it predicts 21 points of inflection that will occur in the immediate future, in the next 10 years, and what impact those are going to have on society on the economy and employment. We are very close to the normalisation of implantable technology. Very close. Your personal identity, your bank balance, your health and personal information all be controlled from a chip underneath your skin. Instead of swiping your uh, smart, your, um, your card uh, to pay for something, you just pff, put your hand over it, okay? You want to phone your mother, you tap it out on your hand, okay? Because it's, it, it's possible to do that. It sounds like science fiction. It's very, very close to becoming a reality. Soon, pretty much every device, even the clothes that you wear, can theoretically be connected up to the internet, so you'll never have to lose a pair of socks again that you will know where they are because there'll be a little... It's so cheap now to create those little uh, microchips that need to, to do that. And artificial intelligence will substitute jobs in many sectors. So finally, we come to the spiritual context. And uh, that's, of course, most interest to us. And I talked a bit about this yesterday, but I'll just go into a little bit more detail and highlight certain things. First thing I want to mention is the rise of something which is increasingly called no religion. People who are asked, what's your religious affiliation? They say, well, I don't have one. The proportion who say that that is the case has been rising in the UK over the last 30 years. Back in 1983, one in three people more or less said they had no religious adherence of any kind. Today, it's more than 50%. was it? Uh, last year now, uh, a report was published by St Mary's University in London, which looked at the religious attitudes of, eight, of 16 to 29-year-old young people from across Europe. And it found that in the case of Britain, 70% of them say that they have no religion. But that, that was only the fifth highest. There are four countries even higher than the UK 
Netherlands, Sweden, Estonia and the Czech Republic, 91% of young people say they have no religion. The author of the report, Stephen Bullivant, said this, Christianity as a default, as a norm, is gone for at least the next hundred years. Okay? Now, I would take issue with that, uh, because what he's saying is effectively that God can't do anything. And uh, I'm afraid uh, the history tells us that that's not the case. But um, trends are trends, and the trends are never never linear. There's always big shifts in, in that. But that's the Europe we're living in, okay? The other thing to notice is this big block of yellow. What is that? Well, that's what you... are the people who say that they are Christians. Okay, but what? Polish? Uh, still 80% Christian? Well, obviously, what we're talking about there is a very much cultural Christianity, nominal Christianity, we might call it. And that's another huge challenge. Last month, I, oh not last month, last year, I took part in a, in a consultation that was organised by the Lausanne movement on nominalism. We tried to wrestle with that, um, and we came up with the following statement at the end of that consultation. Something has gone terribly wrong. One third of the world call themselves Christians, but a significant proportion of them are missing. Many of them are missing from our churches, and many others are present, but missing out on the joy of truly knowing and following Christ. Something has to change. Mission to nominal Christians is too often missing from the agenda of the global church and its leaders. We need to really wake up to the reality of nominal Christianity in Europe and be bold in preaching the gospel to people that already think they're Christians. Obviously, having been a missionary here in Spain, church planting here in Spain, that's been my, my meat and drink for the last 25 years. But that, we're, we're surrounded by lots of people who call themselves Christians. That's a challenge, but it's also a huge opportunity. We have something to work with and we need to really take this opportunity in this generation and not think, as sometimes we are often told, oh, well, Europe's completely secular. It isn't. There are a lot of people who call themselves Christians, but they don't know Christ. So we need to be bold, and as we've already heard this week, be prepared to challenge with the truth of the, of the gospel people who think that they are uh, safe in Christ, okay? but they're still on that bus heading to the cliff, as we heard this morning. Yeah? We need to take seriously the challenge of nominal Christianity. The third challenge we need to... Oh, I'm sorry, I'm right behind you. <laughs> so, the third challenge we, we need to really take on board is the spiritual challenge of Islam. On average, today, Muslims make up about 5% of the European population, but this map shows the percentages in some countries which are clearly much higher than that. In France, 8.8%. In, uh, uh, in the UK, 63 in Sweden, 8.1. But in the decades to come, that figure is likely to rise significantly, both due to increased Muslim birth rate and uh, inward migration. The Pew Research Centre, which is one of the key uh, sources of information about what's happening in religious uh, contexts around the world, have tried to predict what the population, the Muslim population, is likely to be in 2020, sorry, 2050 in Europe. And they're saying that it's going to be between 7% and 14%, depending on what happens. What no one doubts, though, is that the proportion of Muslims in Europe is going to rise. Now, I mentioned Vista yesterday, and again, I would encourage you to check, check it out. Uh, there's a, several of our editions have looked at the situation with Islam in Europe. And... Uh, this issue, the one that's on the screen there, asks the question, should we consider the increased Muslim population in Europe as a threat or as an opportunity? 
or maybe both. <laughs> yeah? What's clear is that many Muslims who previously came from completely closed countries are now living on, on our streets and in our cities. I recently heard about an evangelistic ministry in Germany called Prochrist. Are you familiar with Prochrist? Anybody heard of that? It's a huge evangelistic ministry in, in Germany. And they have, were connected up with uh, Persian Christian groups. 1,000 of them now in Germany. Many refugees and asylum seekers are turning to Christ and being baptised. But this Muslim presence is a challenge. Some countries, like Hungary, have completely shut their doors to, to a Muslim immigration. They see it as a threat to Christian values. Are they right? How should we relate to that? Well, to finish, I want to talk about the spiritual context and just mention two things. I, I, I talked a bit about this yesterday already, so I won't go into it in much detail. But the, the, the church planting movements that are around Europe are really quite something to behold. And I'm so excited to be here with you guys. And what I want to encourage you with is that God is doing things through others as well. So to be on the lookout for what God is doing through other church planting movements beyond New Frontiers. As the historic churches of Europe struggle to come to terms with this turn to no religion, God is raising up a new generation of churches across Europe to reach the, the people in this continent. We do not need to despair. On the contrary, we need to be militant and be out there fighting the fight. And part of that is this new army that God has brought from across the sea, not just black, but from Latin America, yes, from the Middle East, incredibly, as well, from Philippines, from, um, from China. Under the radar, many of the churches that they're planting, nobody knows about. They are the living, invisible church in our midst that God, through his Spirit, is raising up. And in the, in the next generation or two, you know, some of the leading Christians in Europe will be these migrant leaders that have come over the sea. I just put myself in... I, I love history, okay? And, and, and I think with statistics, one of the things is we, we look at trends often over short periods of time. God's uh, view of history is so much longer, isn't it? Okay? Um, but sometimes you can try and do that in your mind. And I just put myself in, in Hudson Taylor's skin, okay? Going out to China, feeling, you know, completely, how are these people ever going to respond to the gospel? Doing everything he could to contextualize, to reach those people. Never in his wildest dreams imagining that 150 years later, those Chinese Christians that would come from... From the, the, from the gospel that would flow out, would come back to Europe to reach Europeans. I just think that's amazing. And so, you know, Stephen Bullivant said, oh, 100 years, we're, we're going to have nothing. No, God can do amazing things, and he is doing amazing things. We can't see them just, just yet. But they, the, I'm, I'm expectant at what's God, what I'm going to see and what's left of my life here in Europe. So I just encourage you not to be despairing about Europe at all, but to be expectant and hopeful and looking out for the signs of God doing things in New Frontiers, but beyond it as well. So, I want us to capture at the end of what I've got to share a little bit of the, uh, the vision for Europe and uh, remember this from Isaiah, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. All the earth is full of his glory. God has the whole of the earth. He's not forgotten in his, in his view. He's not forgotten Europe. He's not abandoned Europe. You're part of what God is doing in Europe. And I am just uh, delighted to have the opportunity to share with you guys these two days. It's been a huge encouragement to me. Um, and uh, I just want to well, just sort of say, you know, go for it and, you know, just encourage you. Um, but this is the context in which we find ourselves and we have to, we have to 
bear those things in mind. So we'll come back to the chart to sort of finish off. Use this um, in your local situation as you're thinking um, about where you're working. What are the political challenges in your situation? Has, is, the, is nationalism a challenge? Okay? Is, is there a political uh, reality in your town that you need to speak prophetically into? What are the opportunities there in your situation for demonstrating the Christian gospel in that political context? What about the economic situation? Maybe you, your town has a particular economic challenge. But is that also an opportunity? Okay. What about the social situation? Is, the, is migration or both inwardly or outwardly, so is it immigration or emigration where you're working, is that the issue? What can you and your church plant do to respond to that? Is the problem debt? Is the problem that they, people are, are brought into this idea that in order to live you need to borrow uh, and so on? Maybe you need to be teaching about those things. Maybe you need to be challenging the Christians to, to live differently, to express their, their, their lives in a different way. Um, maybe you need to be encouraging your young people to have children. <laughs> Being very practical. You know, what, what did you learn at this mission conference where they told us to go out and multiply? You know? No, literally. You know? Sometimes we, we, we look down on biological growth. Do you know that the early church, the principal reason why the early church grew was because they had stable marriages, families, and didn't kill their children. There was, wasn't so much abortion in those days, it was infanticide, r- rampant infanticide across the, the Mediterranean world in the early centuries. Um, and the church changed that. Okay? The father of sociology, uh, August Comte, had one phrase he used to say, demography is destiny. Because there's one thing you can be sure of, a child that is not born today will not be 50 years old in 50 years' time. Okay? Most economic statistics are not worth the paper they're written on, but demographics is pretty predictable. And if you have a stable family, a stable community, having more children over hundreds of years, that's going to be a bigger population. The church grew significantly down to biological growth, as well as conversions, of course. But a lot of it was down to that. Okay, environmental challenges. We need to be practicing holistic mission, and that means getting involved in in some of this stuff as well. Climate uh, is going to be a massive thing in 50 years' time. The climate change debate that there is right now will be in a very different place in 50 years' time. We won't won't be debating it. We'll be trying to cope with with the realities that we face. The technological challenges, to be thinking about that, how can we take advantage of of those, and of course, the spiritual situation. I'm going to stop, because I'm looking at the time. Um, How long have we got till? Remind me. Oh, that's right, you did extend to quarter past. So, we've actually got then 20 plus minutes for questions, for challenges. I like a good challenge, so if you disagree with me, I'm quite happy with that. Um, But uh, what I wanted to do is sort of try and give you an overview, but more to the point, to to equip you with a tool to think about your own local situation. Okay? So, any questions or comments? Yes, Phil, isn't it? I'm, I'm rehearsing names, so forgive me for that. Um, so you're quite positive about the, um, the church planting things that you see happening in Europe. Um, do you think that in the light of the shifts that are happening, uh, particularly to the rise of the nuns and those that are non-religious and the kind of disappearance of nominal Christianity in lots of places, that the rate of church planting is sufficient, or is it just still part of the... It is not, not enough to, to shift the needle and change the tone. Yeah. That's a very good question. Did you hear the question? So basically, is the rate of church planting sufficient to compensate for the, the increasing number of people that say they have no, no religious faith? I think it's important to say 
that the, the statistics about new churches, okay, often we count the churches that are new, but we don't count the churches that close down. Okay? There's a certain, you guys know this, you know, not every church plant prospers. Um, and uh, it's some, sometimes you can, it, it can, that number can be exaggerated. So that's important to say. Um, I think we need more church planting. But it's not just a question of more churches. We also need a broader creativity around what Christian communities look like. Okay? Um, We need solid, ordered families of God, uh, you know, according to biblical principles and values, and and, uh, I'm not taking any of that away. But can we be a bit more creative in the way that we do church? Um, it, it, the way that we do church may actually be alienating to some to some people, and um, I I had the privilege last year of, of travelling around the province where we live in Spain and vi- and speaking to lots and lots of churches there across the whole gamut of evangelical churches in Spain, and it it was encouraging to see the churches growing, but I, I found myself with my head with my hands on my head and just in, in not in despair that's too strong, but just. Frustrated at how narrow the, the, the variance was between the churches. They were, whether it was a Pentecostal church or whether it was a Baptist, uh, you know, more conservative church, the differences are tiny. Tiny. The, the, the basic pattern for the worship services. The Spanish are quite um, exuberant anyway, so even the most conservatives, you know, there's quite a lot of clapping and, you know, stuff going on. So the, the, the actual experience of, of participation in Christian work is really quite narrow. We need more creativity, I believe, okay? And a willingness to consider different ways of, of, of being Christian families um, while staying absolutely rooted to the, to the principles of, of what a, a church really authentically needs to be and is, Okay? Yep. So you mentioned yesterday the Unipontimil, yep. over 10,000 people in school. There's a massive push for church planting in France. But one of the things that's come with it has been almost a kind of mandate for established churches to not be evangelistic. There's kind of this mentality that if you want to be evangelistic, plant a church, that's where evangelism happens. Um, but then the rest of the established churches have kind of don't have a missional focus for many of them. And even young people who I meet who've joined us because we're a church plant, and I say, oh yeah, I joined you because you're a church plant because I'm going to be evangelistic. And I'm saying to them, well, one day we're going to be established, but we don't want to lose the evangelistic side. So mm-hmm. Are there any statistics or any figures that you know of that can kind of help us measure and gauge how missional and evangelistic established churches are in, in Europe? Do you have mm-hmm. any sense of that? Well, I think one of the, uh, one of the most... Oh yeah, I mean that's a difficult question to summarise in a few words. Um, okay, how missional are established churches, more or less? Okay, um, I think church planting. Uh, one of the things that church planting does is it enables you to uh, to change a lot of things very quickly in a way that an established church, you know, we're 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 people that like patterns, and once we've got into a pattern. Um, I mean, uh, it happens really quickly. You know, you come in the first night in the conference, you sit down in a certain place, and some people will sit down in the same place every, every, every time. We, 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 we're creatures of habit, okay? And before you know it, cre- uh, those habits become traditions, and those traditions uh, lock us into ways of thinking. And so the, the great thing about church planting is, is it, it enables us to sort of change a lot of things quickly uh, and establish a new Christian community and, and, and continue to ev- um, innovate uh, how, we, how we are Christian community. And um, so that's an argument for, for, for church planting. But there are examples of missional uh, innovation within uh, established churches. And um, many of you will be familiar with the Fresh Expressions movement in the Anglican Church. And that's a good example of that, I think, where uh, they are trying to experiment, but in 
in close connection with existing uh, historic church. Now, the thing I like about fresh expressions is because those those innovative experiments, if they're not if they're not connected up well, what can often happen is is that they fail or they stop meeting the needs of that group and the people that have um, been reached as a result of it then have nowhere to go. So sometimes the, 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 the sort of more extreme cases of trying to do something different that are not connected to anything else generate a lot of orphaned Christians and that's a problem. So uh, the better examples of it are, are still connected up with a, with a church but the, the traditional churches have a huge challenge because they value so much some of these uh, historic elements that are, are not necessary for the, pro- for the pro- propagation of the gospel. Uh, it's not that they're bad, but they're carrying this weight of, of tradition and of the ways that things are done. And those things re- people often react to uh, because they think, well, they're doing this, and I, I know that churches that do, do this also have committed abuses, have also had these negative associations. So, um, you know, I, I, I believe that God is still working in those churches, um, but I'm a big believer in church planting, and I'm not going uh, to say that it doesn't have its, um, its peculiar place in God's economy. Okay, um, how do you how do you match up? Um, say that again. So we talked a lot about growth in terms yeah. of economy, yes, Europe, um, and social growth in terms of birth rates. Yes, grow to sustain what's currently there. That has an effect on uh, agriculture yeah. and uh, environmental sustainability across Europe, also across the world. And as Christians, having a care for the poorest communities who might be most affected by that. Okay. Does that yeah, yeah. So basically, how do you match up, or how do you, uh, at one, on the one hand, say we need to have more children, <laughs> uh, whilst on the other hand, need to be re- environmentally responsible, particularly taking into account the impact that that has on the poorest who are most affected by those things? Is that fair? Yeah. Okay. Uh, you're right. It is a challenge, but also a question, um, and a good uh, and, a, and a very good one. Um, yeah, I mean, they're on, on a global level. You know that global population is is increasing. You know, the population of India and it will soon take it to uh, to it being taking overtaking China as the biggest country globally with population, and uh, that is a real um, challenge. I don't think, but by encouraging the churches. Uh, uh, I don't get around that much that my encouragement to have children is going to make a huge uh, difference to the birth rates of Europe. Um, but uh, I, do, I do think by doing that, I'm raising uh, awareness okay, of the opposite, which is the, the way that the thinking in Europe is actually affecting uh, the way we do family and the way we think about having children. But there's no question that there are economic consequences uh, that we are living with and that they are turning into environmental ones. And the the concern I have is that basically we're saying we don't really care. Ultimately, we don't really care about the environment because the economics has to to trump all of that. How are we going to live then? You know, if we're all going to... Uh, deal with the economic uh, sorry the environmental challenge if that's going to mean we're all poor um, then uh, the Chinese are not going to be doing anything about that the, the Indians are not going to be doing anything about that their economies are still uh, going to be growing and they're having all these having, having all these children I don't think the, the economic situation and the 
environmental situation are, are matched up by our politicians. I don't honestly think that they take the environmental situation anything like as seriously enough. It will happen, but it'll only happen when we, when we have no other um, No other choice, exactly, that's what I wanted to say. Sadly, you're absolutely right, the ones that suffer the most are the poor. And that's where the church needs to, I think, um, be bold, both in speaking out about this uh, more than we do. When was the last time that there was anything talked about this in a, from the pulpit, about the environmental challenge that we face? But also, and this is me being a bit provocative here perhaps, um, for us to, to be engaged politically more in this area, there are many issues with, and ex forgive the expression in English, getting into bed with, but in forming uh, alliances with, with people who are very different to us, but who we see in the same way uh, certain issues. But for example, the Greens, okay, in many parts of Europe, we would have a lot of issues with uh, their policies on many things but on certain issues we we would see very much the the same way uh, the question is to what degree are we able to um, speak on certain issues and uh, agree with others um, whilst keeping ourselves out of other issues that's not very clear but you understand what I'm saying here yeah? that the need to, to to have a discernment about how we speak into the world. Okay. Not to belabor the, the issue at all, but uh, continuing on with that theme of birth rate, uh, coming from the North American context, any discussion around birth rates has a racial undertone to the discussion, that it's a culture war between uh, those who were here first or those who control power um, in order to maintain set power and influence. And so any discussion around birth rates, I think, has to be tempered by, uh, by joining it with uh, social responsibility. Because what you said about the importance of uh, promoting healthy families is not the same thing as the birth rate. Um, can you talk about the role of the family in church planting and in culture apart from birth rate? Yeah. Right? Because I think, I assume you would, that there's more to it than birth rate when you talk about the role of the family. Of course. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, uh, that goes without saying. It's more than just birth rate. Um, the just having lots of children doesn't actually uh, change anything. Um, the I mean, it changes the, the number of people that there are in the society. But the, the as I said, the thing that made the difference in the early church was the the way that they lived, the way that their their families were were stable, marriages were stable, the children were brought up, um, and uh, and there was a joining up of, of the, the family with the Christian community, with the broader, uh, the broader family, and they became a family of families. Um, that sense of society ultimately being built on the back of stable family life. And so, absolutely, there's a, there's, it goes beyond just birth rate. It's not just a matter of, of having having more children. I don't want to labour that point particularly. Um, as I say, the, 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 the focus of what I wanted to share was more about raising awareness of the reality of the declining birth rate in Europe, okay? Um, and making the point that yes, it is a, a biological growth has a part to play in the extension of the Kingdom of God, but um, not at the cost of, uh, of the family. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you uh, for that. Um, the, the reality is that in many countries across Europe, there are horrifying numbers of children um, who are being taken care 
of by the state. And um, it's, a, it's a huge opportunity for the church, again, to, to say, okay, well, maybe I already have two children, but I can cope with, a, with, with another one, and give that child a family into which they can uh, be inserted and, and can grow, and, and uh, absolutely would, in, would encourage that, that amongst all of us. Any more questions? We're coming towards lunchtime. A long morning already. I'm going to finish off with just one little final little, little bit, which is effectively trying to project into the future, okay, and say a little bit about what that means. So, in each of these areas, we can, with our prophetic glasses on, start to see what mission is going to look like in the future, if, if current, the current situation uh, carries on as, as, it, as it is. Um, the political situation will be a very challenging one in the future. Uh, nationalism, the history of Europe, okay, is of wars. I've lived the whole of my life, I'm 53, I have never had to carry a gun. I've never had to pick up a weapon to defend my home and my family. That is a huge historical anomaly. For most of Europe's history, our nations have been warring against each other. Okay? Now, whether you put that down to NATO, whether you say it's thanks to the EU or whatever, it, it is what it is. It's a, it's a, a massive uh, blessing, the age in which we live. Probably, probably that won't continue forever. Okay? So we need to recognise the political situation we find ourselves in and, and be... be um, ministers of peace and reconciliation, but also to recognise that nationalism brings up within us, okay, uh, demonising of the other, whoever the other is. Now we're living through that in the UK with Brexit, this sort of separation, the fracturing of, uh, of society into two bands, the, the terrible language that's being, being used about the other, okay? The church needs to be in the middle of that speaking peace and justice. Okay? Not falling into the trap of demonising the other, but being able to help our people who have different political uh, convictions to, to be able to build society together, to actually be agents of peace in the middle of that. Could the church be a key part in the Brexit situation today in actually bringing, bringing the, the country in to, to its senses? Okay? But more broadly, I think we need to really be, be, be aware of the, the, the whole, with respect to migration too, the need for our congregations to be experiencing, what it, uh, to be practising what I shared yesterday around neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, uh, male nor female, that um, inter, um, international um, transcultural family of God living that out and practicing what that means okay with respect to economics i think it's going to mean the church doing some of the things that it used to do a century and a half ago a century and a half ago many many churches ran schools ran old people's homes ran uh, businesses um set up businesses to 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 deal with some of the social problems in in society whether that was uh, alcoholism or or unemployment or poverty or whatever um, the church needs to be much more engaged in the future in those areas. And 
I think we will be. I think there'll be some uh, some key things that we need to do in that. So if any of you are, a, are business people, um, business as mission will become more and more a, a key feature of the future. Church plants that are built around a, a business, maybe. In the social area, we've already mentioned that, uh, but I think there's, there's, there, are, there are opportunities there for, for us too um, to do much, much more with the migrant populations in our midst, to be thinking about how we can uh, encourage them to, to work with the churches and to live together in community. Um, environmentally, I think environmental issues, what's sometimes called uh, the greening of mission because it's more environmentally sensitive that's still quite a fringe thing I think that's going to become very central in 50 years time that's going to become a very very important part of what it means to, uh, to, to be a Christian to be engaged in that area there are technological challenges in the future and um, I want to look at some of those statistics, I really encourage you to read that report if that's of interest to you I'm not a techie sort of geeky guy uh, so we need our people that are to be really wrestling with some of the the challenges of what what that looks like in the future and what those what the implications of that obviously there are opportunities too for um, for mission but thinking about those things but spiritually I don't fear the future of Europe I have absolute confidence that the Lord is working and uh, I'm as I said earlier excited and expectant to see what he's going to do with the church in our time Um, I look forward to sitting around the fireplace and reminiscing about the days when we couldn't see yet what God was going to do in Europe I think I'll leave it there Thank you all very much. Thank you.